0: This is episode 216 with 219 Marathoner, publisher of the Positive Split newsletter, and a recipient of the Best Sports Writing in 2021 award, Mr. Peter Bromka. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode features a deep dive on the Boston Marathon, The new rolling start, COVID precautions, how to break the race up into segments, mantras, and mindsets to help you overcome the tough parts of this race, fueling guidance, and more. I'm joined by my friend Peter Bromka, someone who's getting ready to run his eighth Boston marathon. Peter missed qualifying for the Olympic trials by a mere two seconds. In his experience running more than a dozen marathons, many of them quite fast, Combined with his seven Boston appearances, puts him in a great position to talk all things Boston Marathon. But before we start, I mentioned this last week, I'm exploring whether to host an in-person retreat in 2022, strength running style. I've created a short survey that won't take more than a couple minutes of your time. If you go to strengthrunning.com retreat, I would love to know your thoughts, your preferences, and your help in making this an amazing experience. And if you want even more resources to help your running, don't miss Strength Running's YouTube channel at youtube.com strengthrunning and our home base, strengthrunning.com. Since 2010, we've helped tens of thousands of runners from all around the world level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses on topics from strength to injury prevention, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you achieve your wildest ambitions as a runner. We're supported by Path Projects, which is fitting because just this morning, my six-year-old made fun of me for wearing all Path gear at breakfast. What can I say? They make some of my favorite t-shirts, baseliners, and shorts. They use innovative, lightweight fabrics that are stretchy, they wick sweat, and help you worry about your run instead of your gear. I also love how durable their shorts are. Check out all of their gear at pathprojects.com. We're also sponsored by Inside Tracker. They help you analyze your body's biomarker data to give you a clear picture of what's going on inside you and then offer science-backed recommendations to improve any metrics that are outside of your unique optimal zones. For a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store at insidetracker.com/strengthrunning. All right, if you're running the Boston Marathon, you've already run Boston, or you just love this race, then I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode with writer, runner, and my former college competitor, Peter Bromka. Peter went to Tufts University in Boston, and I went to Connecticut College. And so we both competed in the New England Small College Athletic Conference. So I know him well from our college days. And just so we're clear, Peter was and is a lot faster than me. He's also the publisher of the Positive Split newsletter, which you can learn more about at thepositivesplit.com. Peter has now run 219.02 in the marathon for BTC Elite, the pro arm of the Bowerman Track Club. We spoke earlier this year after he helped pace Desiree Linden to a world record in the 50K. Now, he has his eyes set on his eighth Boston Marathon. This episode has us geeking out about the new starting protocol, the various COVID precautions that the race is taking, the pros and cons of the race now being in October this year, Peter's more advanced way of thinking about the Boston course, why he sings lullabies to himself during the race, how you should think about carbohydrate intake, and a lot more. By the way, if you want Strength Running's own Boston course guide that goes over all the details of this amazing race, you can get it at strengthrunning.com Boston. Without further delay, please enjoy this deep dive on the Boston Marathon with Mr. Peter Bromka. My man, Peter Bromka, welcome back <laughs> to the podcast. Thanks for having me again. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited for our, our deep dive on the Boston Marathon today, of course, but I think I want to start with your training. I've got to know how things have been going for you. How are you feeling? Oh, man.
1: Um, So training has been good. I mean, I feel like anytime you arrive at a taper for a marathon and you feel healthy, then you have to take a moment and like give thanks. Um, So it's been going along. I haven't trained for a race in October in many years. I ran Chicago 2014 which i distinctly remember like the time in august when it was hot it felt too hot for a long run but i'm like well i gotta start going longer than is comfortable because it's time to get going so that's that was what i experienced again it was middle of july and i was like all right here we go it's too hot but let's go 23 miles so so for me i should say like i don't build up to um like my long run of 23 miles like i used to um that would that used to be, I used to think that like anything over 18 was detrimental. Um, And it probably was for me at the time with my ability. That was years ago. I have built up to the point where I start off by going 22, 23, just easy pace. And then I build in some structure, maybe like um, a fast minute every mile. Um, And then I build into like some more proper structure of like multiple times three miles at marathon pace or a progressive all the way to getting faster than marathon pace by the end. So any number of different types of workouts. But it's been a challenge to do it um, in July, August, September. That's just different. Um, I know that a lot of people do Chicago year after year and they're, they're all about this type of training. It's been a new Experience for me, I have gotten very locked into the CIM early December from Labor Day to December tr- way of training. Where you know it, you know it's October now, and I'm like, my body's telling me I should be getting after some huge workouts, and I'm actually starting. I mean, you know, I'm in the middle of a taper, so it's a. It's been an adjustment. I think it's been good for me to like change things and not feel like totally in control. That's part of the experience. Um, and it's been, so it's been going well. Um, but it leaves me a little less certain of exactly what fitness I'm in. There's a benefit to CIM, which is you do your key workouts in late October, early November, when the weather is pretty primed for, you know, um, the heat and the humidity to just do a workout that makes you stronger, but also tests your current fitness um, and allows you to know like, what is my marathon pace that I can tackle? Um, I'd say that I'm slightly less certain of exactly what that is, but that'll be part of the fun of running Boston in the fall first ever. Do you think there's
0: a benefit with the Boston Marathon being in October this year? Because the fact that you had to do some of those big workouts in the heat, and now you're a little bit more well adapted to the heat, you've got some of those you know, nice efficiency adaptations that have happened. Cause I know when you train through the winter and then run Boston in April, it can sometimes be a little warm and you're not adapted to that whatsoever. And it can be really challenging.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I've actually been seeing people post about this on Twitter that if, if it is basically Unless it's a 2018 torrential downpour, um, if it's a little hot, little cold, your body will probably be more adapted to it than I know. So many friends from the East Coast. There's been multiple years where they've arrived in Boston, and it's just been like a little bit hot. There, they've said to me after the race, like there wasn't. I haven't had a day like this in any of the lead-up. So how was I supposed to even react? You know, how was I? I I know from memory what this weather's like, but man, it threw me for a loop. So yeah, I think that there's a chance, uh, two things going for it, that coming from heat, any heat will feel like, oh, it's not so bad. And um, I was posting about the fact that I looked at the weather online, and someone replied, the fact that the sun will be coming in at an angle that should be beneficial, the fact that there will be leaves on the trees, so there should be more shade, which I hadn't thought about, because sometimes in April, there really isn't a lot of shade along some of those paths uh, of the course and then also that it seems as though a lot of people will be running earlier in the day i mean to to rewind all the way i ran boston in 2005 and 2006 when the start time was noon um so it was just a slog on a warm day it was just you know um you sort of sat there knowing it was getting warmer and warmer and then gun goes off at noon and you're just like oh shoot i have nowhere to hide um whereas this year um fairly early an even earlier start from the 10 a.m. start that had classically been moved to so that should play to our favor
0: yeah i think i think it actually might be pretty advantageous for a lot of runners because there have been some years when it was held in april that uh were just really really challenging i remember t- 2012 in particular was a really hot year um so let's let's talk about the race itself and and how runners can really wrap their heads around how to have a great Boston Marathon experience. I want this episode to be a, a very comprehensive overview of the day. We've already talked about sun angles, so we're, we're certainly <laughs> going to get nerdy and in-depth here. So maybe we should start, Peter, with what's different this year. I, I think I understand that the race organizers are setting up the morning of the race differently because of COVID. And I think the biggest change is the rolling start, like you just mentioned. Can can you talk about some of those new
1: differences this year? So my understanding is that in order to not just build a city um, the morning of, trying to be very COVID aware. First, they'll require vaccination to enter the expo um, or a negative test. So if you um, need to do that, then I, th- I just imagine that the whole expo is going to be slightly different. You'll have to wear a mask indoors. Um, there, I don't know. You know, I don't know anything about how they're setting it up, other than it will require some precautions. Um, and then the way that they're doing it. It actually it's interesting the moment you change things it makes you wonder why things were done the way they were classically uh so the athletes village out in hopkinton is like kind of this amazing experience and sort of like terrifying from a nerves perspective like getting on a bus riding a bus that you think will take 50 minutes but actually ends up taking like 70 minutes um there's someone always on the bus who jokes like, Oh man, we have to run all the way back to where we started. That's a long ways. And you're like, yeah, thanks for making the jokes that someone makes every year. Um, (laughs) You get out there and you're in this area that has like some food, a huge tent, some coffee, porta potty lines, and then a ton of grass. And if it's not uh, rainy, then you can find a place to lie down and just try to relax your nerves. Um, but for the most part, you sit there for a couple hours until your wave is called. And if you think about it, that's sort of a horrifying way to lead up to like the biggest effort possible. Um, it's certainly not how most people start their weekend long run, is just like laying around potentially out in the sun for hours. So uh, the organizers came up with a plan to essentially move that invitation to start back to the Boston common. Um, my understanding is that, you know, everyone has a number assigned to their bib and that you won't be able to get on a bus unless, you know, it's the color of your bib in the same way that you weren't allowed to walk to the start line in the past, unless the color of your bib was the color that they were calling. They're basically moving that all to don't show up to the common until I have friends on the seven fifteen bus, for instance, those are the first buses, um, being then brought out and then the idea is that once you arrive there in hopkinton you'll get off the bus um and there will be a my understanding a certain amount of time before um at 9 a.m the the waves of start will begin so there will actually be a a series of guns there's a there is guns for the pro fields of the um, wheelchair fields Of the men's field of the women's field and then at 9 a.m there will be the first wave start um, which will then kick off um, my understanding is the rest of the day which will be people getting off buses taking as much time as they need but it it essentially unless they've moved to the location ambling about a half mile from the main school where they congregate down to the starting line which isn't still the same spot uh, on the hopkinton green. And then starting your watch whenever you cross the start line and your chip records that you're ready to go. Um, so my, because the waves of buses will be assigned by uh, bib number, I th- it should be that people will be getting off a bus surrounded by people about their ability level, and you know that the, once they walk, uh, go to the bathroom, tie their shoes, and you know throw off some sweats, they should be arriving at the start line around people that you know might be shooting for similar goals. That's the beauty of Boston. Unlike other races, you really do look at each other's bib and say like, oh, we qualified. Uh, whether or not we've like gained or lost fitness from our qualifying time who knows, but we qualified with similar times. Like, and I think that's where some of the conversation will start. Like, Hey, what are you looking to run today? Oh, like maybe we could create a pack together. Um, So I think it's definitely a different dynamic. I've heard about it happening at uh, the wave start or the sort of like only chip time, not really gun time being a thing um, or corrals being a thing at other races in the last year and a half as organizers have tried to, put uh, on events but this will be the first time that a major marathon works with that and I mean to be honest it was wild to me to see that I saw a video of Berlin last weekend and people just packed in like sardines and then they fired the gun they all head out just like um, it's a throwback to 2019 or that's what maybe London will be like but um, yeah Boston is taking extra precaution and um, I think it's fine I mean I think it should be good I think that obviously they'll look at how it went and see if that's something that they, uh, carry forward to Boston in the spring of 22, but we'll see.
0: What do you think the impact is of that, that rolling start? I mean, it's obviously going to make things a little bit more spread out, right? So do, do you think the times for non-elite runners might be a little bit faster because, there's less congestion at the start, I know you know practically every every race with a big start, I talk to runners who were like, "Oh man, the first two miles I was just weaving in and out of other runners, so what do you think that'll how do you think that'll play out on the course itself?
1: Yeah, I'm hopeful that people can center themselves around their own like how they're feeling um, and it will just by starting whenever they want to, yeah, the idea of is actually like really, it's exciting, but it packs people in, you're terrified. I've had friends, I had a friend in 2019, he tripped right after the start because a, a man went down, he went down over him and he cut his arm, he cut his hip and then he had to get stitches at mile 16, he didn't finish the race. So hopefully there will be less of this, um, the fear of heading out at a pace that's other than your own. I've I've started Boston and you're s- sort of shuffling for the first mile. Then you speed up and you think, "Oh, did I speed up too much?" You know, I'm obviously nervous that I'm giving away seconds by heading out slowly. Maybe I'm going to overcorrect. And so, the classic thing in Boston is it's really downhill the first mile, a half mile in particular, and then you're also surrounded by people. You'll see people flying by like in the gutter or over, you know, off on the sidewalk and and you're like, okay, I mean, that guy's really in a hurry. He must have, you know, designs on a running with someone that is up ahead or something like that. Um, I'll tell you, I had the honor of running as part of the elite field in 2019. And I get that honor again. And because it's only about 50 guys, and they're pretty good runners. um, I went out in three minutes for the first kilometer, just like flying downhill. Um, And it wasn't even that hard. It was obviously exciting. You're on tv they fire the gun and you head out but with what the biggest thing to me was there was no one really in front of me um there was plenty of space on the road so i think it'll lead to a lot faster early uh mile or two and i think that that can be okay there's a lot of like we know the first couple miles are fast and so people have to hold themselves back and while that's true it's um it's necessary for people to just center themselves and think am i do i feel comfortable if if you feel comfortable and you're you know your stride is true and you're cushioning your falls you're not just smashing down uh, on you know downhill then i think it can be okay and i think it could lead to some great starts do you
0: think too that the the rolling start might mean there are runners who are finishing the race later in the day than they would normally start? Because I just looked up the rolling start times and it looks like the final wave, which is the orange wave, it goes red, white, blue, yellow, green, orange. So the expected start time for that final orange wave is between 11 and 1124 AM. Is that Substantially later than it was in the past.
1: I don't think so because 10 a.m. was the official start uh, traditionally, and then there was corrals within that, and then there was a second wave, and I believe a third wave, and that at that point you're getting into the charity runners again. Remember this: this is a small, the smallest Boston in years, so it's only about I think twenty thousand um, ballpark as opposed to thirty thousand, which it had grown to. Uh, I have a friend. Uh, good friend running for charity. And so hearing about her experience is like giving me that other end of the bell curve, uh, understanding of the logistics about when her buses will leave. And yeah, it, it was traditionally a decent amount of time from the official start of the mass race to when the second and third wave were allowed to start. And you would see that actually because they would fire another gun. Um, I've seen video of uh, not the pros, but the a a gun firing and people rocketing downhill who just happen to be, you know, their bibs aligned with the front of the second or third wave. Um, And so I think it'll be closer to that and hopefully pretty good timing of time of day. Still not that late in the day.
0: Yeah. Still better than that old fashioned noon start, which can be just brutal, especially if it were held, you know, earlier in April. Um, so let's talk about the course itself and, and maybe we can start big picture and, and talk about just how you generally think about the Boston marathon race course. Do you think it very differently than any other courses? You know, you've, you've run CIM a bunch of times. CIM is a very different race course than Boston. You've also run Boston quite a few times I think it's seven total
1: so is it like a a whole different type of approach for you yeah I mean I really think of it as it's funny I don't so CIM and Boston are kind of similar actually it's funny you say they're different because they if you look at the maps next to each other they both fall downhill um, but then Boston ramps uphill uh, whereas CIM you know just like gradually uh smooths to a a dead flat or almost uh, a slight still slight decline by the end so cim is classically fast because it's slightly downhill it uh, complies with um different like standards for qualifying for things but then if you go out too fast you can get away with it a little bit because it's only flat or slightly downhill whereas the big trap of boston is if you go it lends itself to going out too fast. And then there are hills. So it'll catch you sort of in a lie if you go out too fast. Um, Whereas my friends headed to Chicago the day before, dead flat, that'll also, uh, I mean, you just see fireworks uh, in Chicago because people head out. And then I hear this all the time. Oh, like five seconds a mile faster than my goal time in Chicago. I was I was going through the north part of the city, and it, it was just it was flowing to me that day. Um, and then, sure enough, by the end, when they're coming back into the city, they're running on dead legs and they've got nothing left. Uh, whereas, so Boston, I think of it. Um, I I've heard this was imparted to me years ago. The simplest way to think about it is sixteen and ten. The first sixteen miles are slightly downhill and then flat, and that gets you to the sixteen mile mark. So it's like a fast sixteen miler. Now you have to be careful because you can go out too fast. You can also beat up your quads. Um, But if you sort of think of it as the course will give you some seconds um, and you can arrive at the 16 mile mark feeling pretty good uh, because there's some downhill. Then the second 10 is challenging. It's up, it's flat, it's up, it's flat, it's down, it's hard. Um, I mean, the end... The last couple of miles are technically net downhill, but they have some rolling to it. When you're going by BU, I never feel particularly like, oh, man, this is a great downhill mile. It feels like, ouch. So, yeah, I think the the simplest way to approach Boston is the 1610, which was, again, imparted to me years ago by some guys at the Greater Boston Track Club. I think about Boston in a slightly more advanced way, which is six miles, 10 miles. So breaking up that 16 miler. Uh, into the first 10k is downhill and as long as you're able to stay within your own sense of self and roll with it um, because there's some kickers there's some uphills there's some steep downhills but as long as you're able to stay within checking in on how am I feeling um, the first six miles really is the downhill part of the first 16 miles and then it's I think it's helpful for me to know that miles seven through 16 is roughly flat um it's a, it's a rolling flat it's slightly up and slightly down so each year i get to mile eight and nine and i think i feel like crap I, like today i'm not sure about today and then i remember oh mile eight and nine of that rolling 10 miler is slightly uphill so mile nine is like after you've gone downhill for six and then you've been generally flat for seven and eight mile eight and nine you gain a little bit which again for someone who trains on hills around anywhere is like it shouldn't be a big deal if you're looking at the map you're like that'll be nothing but after having been going downhill for close to an hour you start to think like this is horrible something's wrong and all it means for me is I have to dial back just a few seconds of effort a mile I have to just be able to like again okay going uphill now stay within myself dial it back a bit um still like find that line again where you're running your own race and you're not like chasing a pack. Um, but so that, that 10 miles um, and then mile 16 is downhill. And that's like truly you're flying downhill. Um, again, you have to like have proper form. I try to like th- really think about leaning forward, being on the balls of my feet, not cr- I think about like, okay, where is the force from this uh, impact going? I don't want it to be just smashing into my uh, feet, into my quads. I want to be like rolling downhill very effortlessly. Um, and then I think about it as a series of two hard, one easy. So it's 17, 18 up. And those are hard. Like those are, you You have to like re-shift your gears from a flat gear and a downhill gear to, okay, I'm, I can, I, I always say like, the beauty of the Boston Uphills is you can only run them as fast as you can run them. And if you try to run them harder than you're ready, you will like there's too many of them and you'll like expire yourself. So I always think of like, okay, here we are. Um, I and whether or not I'm right in front of, right behind, right next to a teammate, I try to think like I can't necessarily run miles 17 18 at the same pace he's going to run mile 17 18 i need to be willing to go slightly ahead or even slightly behind and just think it'll even out because then mile 19 is actually like flat slash downhill um so that to me is it's hard because you want to uh sort of change gears again and pick it up Uh, you want to like run a a good solid split on a flat but you just ran two miles uphill um so you need to like balance those two things and then you know this is a lot to think about it's like i i can say it right now and i'm sitting at my desk and it's very calm it'll kind of feel like the you know chaos in my mind has like ramped up from like a three to a four to a five to a six because if i say like then you need to run smoothly but strongly miles 19 and 20 you're like you mean heartbreak hill you mean like when the fans are screaming at you and like your quads are potentially giving out and it's like so i try to like center myself on okay what is my stride going uphill um i sometimes actually find it almost physically a relief because going uphill at that rate demands uh engaging my calves in a way that they hadn't really been pushing off so i have classically had like slight uh cramping of my left calf like late in the race and i'll sometimes feel that in boston at like mile 16 mile 17 um so then i get to mile 19 and 20 which are uphill and i just don't feel like i uh cramp in the same way if i'm engaging the my calves in an uphill stride so i'm like okay just find that stride and like work that gear and uh don't try to run these hills too fast um i mean it's like any hill running you you go too hard for like 20 seconds and suddenly you're like, okay, I'm feeling it. I need to back off. Um, and so I just try to like soak in the crowd like, and really just keep moving. I, I've told this story many times, but I went to Tufts University and every year we would go to mile 20 and a half, I think, um, right before the crest of heartbreak. And we would just scream for people like, you got to go, because people would be walking and we we're like, come on, you got to start running again. Um, and we would try to lend them. You know our energy and like i can see why people appreciated it but i can also see in hindsight how like we had as kids had no idea what they were going through we were like running 3ks and 5ks 10 k's maybe um and really like they were almost at the top of heartbreak and as i have a heartbreak it is downhill eventually but you have about a half mile of like flat which is not like the reprieve you're really looking for that you would love you'd love to just be like Oh, deep breath but like no you have to change gears again and find some stride that's moving along to get to like the true downhill which then starts to go like through bc by the reservoir but um and like gets you over onto Comab. so yeah i mean it's it's just like i think of it as constant gear shifts and trying to not settle into like okay what i've been doing for the last five minutes is what i'm going to do for the next five you try to like constantly be um, checking in on like, am I running hard enough? Usually you're running hard enough. Am I running too hard? Um, okay. And I mean, I try to impress this upon friends who haven't run it. I'm like, it's a challenge to think, can I dial it back like five seconds a mile and not dial it back 20 seconds a mile? Because um, that's where your your runner mind will kind of spin.
0: Yeah. The the idea of Boston as a race where you need to constantly shift gears is, is something that surprised me myself when I ran it back in 2014, because the marathons that I had run previously, uh, the two major ones were the Philadelphia Marathon and the New York City Marathon. Even though both are not super flat courses, they still just don't compare to Boston with the types of hills and where the hills come in the race. And so it was a little bit jarring for me to have to do that. But Peter, I love the way that you talk about effort. You talk about settling into an effort. You talk about changing gears. I do think that's a more advanced way of talking about pacing and race strategy and, you know, not going out too hard for yourself. If someone is maybe running their first, second, or third marathon at Boston this year, and you're trying to talk about this more from a pacing perspective rather than, you know, an effort perspective, because, you know, when you're a beginner runner, you haven't run too many marathons. It's kind of hard to, to figure out where those efforts really are because you just don't have the experience yet. How might you give that same kind of overview from a pacing perspective? Would you be able to say, like could you be a little slower here and a little faster here and, and still kind of have the same general contours of the effort?
1: Yeah, I'd have to look. I I find Strava has been really helpful for me on this. Um, If you can find someone who's generally your pace, um, who's run Boston, and just look, because what they have is something called gap grade adjusted pace. Um, So when I talk about numbers, it's going to be a little skewed towards people in my zone. But what I know is that, um, so for me, I've run Boston with splits as low as like 210, maybe, and then as high as maybe, oh, sorry, 210. What am I talking about? I'm talking about as low as 510, and then as high as 550, 555 um, going up heartbreak. And so if you look at like a 40 second swing for a marathon, that it's like, it's pretty dramatic. And I know that that swing gets more dramatic um, as the, number of minutes per mile increases Um, because yeah I think if you look at uh, on Strava they'll say like oh this um, 550 mile is actually equivalent to a 520 mile Uh, so like the math on the the science of that hill is giving you 30 seconds and I think that increases so I just try to look at different zones and think okay am I running a little bit I try to have a sense of what would my pace be on a very flat course. Like if I was running Chicago, I would want to arrive on the day with a sense of like, there's, it's dead flat. There's no Hills. What pace do I think I could hold? Not like what pace do I think I, if I got greedy or had a perfect day I could hit, but like, no, I'm pretty confident. Like this would be a B plus a minus day. Then taking that to Boston and saying, okay, um, I can go a little faster than that on the downhill, as long as I'm checking in with myself and then I'm going to spot myself. I mean, it sounds insane to get like, look forward to a hill like heartbreak or any of the Newton Hills. But if you think, Oh, for this hill, like I, I could have 30, 40, 50 seconds. Um, I can give myself a minute of Heartbreak, slower than I think my ideal pace. And you're still, you almost always in Boston have more miles to like fight for more seconds. If you, if, if you still have legs to, to do that. Um, and so at that point you start to look at like, wow, I could have upwards of a minute or more di- split difference between my fastest mile when I'm, you know, very much running within myself, but just crash going downhill. Mile 16 is always wild for me because you really do kind of go flat and then you turn by this town green and you just go flying downhill. And I, again, years ago when I was at Tufts, I, rode the commuter rail out and I met, um, an old teammate of mine who was running, I think his first marathon at Boston. And I was like, all right, man, downhill coming up. And he's like, no more downhill. I don't want any more downhill. Cause his quads were totally shot. He had like really raced the first half marathon and his quads were just shot. So you need to be checking in with the systems and just being like, okay, stay within yourself, but also let yourself like roll with the terrain as it presents itself um the other thing i would say is i ran boston twice um as like a recent grad 05 and 06 and the thing i didn't know anything about was nutrition um so if i was for my friends who are running their first marathon or even their second i'm like all right talk to me about your nutrition plan and your so when you're going to eat pre-race when you're going to eat uh like sort of immediately pre-race and then what's your schedule throughout such that you're not having to make it up based on how you're feeling, but you're saying like, no, I've I've traveled X number of miles, and that means it's time for a gel. That means that I want a cup of this or a cup of that. Um, Boston both has Gatorade Endurance every two miles and then has water stations right after those. And then it was announced this year that Morton uh, Hydrogel will be handed out three times. Um, I'm forgetting where those are, like... 13, 17 and 20 maybe. I think I have that wrong. but um, I think people I distinctly remember the feeling of bonking um, in 2006 and how I just like felt super vision blurry and I was out of it. and that was as much of a detriment to my finish time that day and how many how many minutes I gave back in the towards the end as um, pacing strategy, if that makes sense.
0: Oh, that was so helpful, Peter, to to kind of talk about that from more of a a pacing perspective. I think having both is super helpful. And so for the Morton hydrogel Uh, drops. Those are going to be at mile 11.8 on the Wellesley town line, mile 17 in Newton and at mile 21.5 just after Boston college. And so they're going to have both non-caffeinated and caffeinated versions, man, getting a caffeinated Morton (laughs) hydrogel at mile 21.5 just sounds like exactly what I would want.
1: (laughs) Um, yes. I mean, I have been on the Morton bandwagon since it started i was like paying attention to the elite the pro runners who were experimenting with this new form of nutrition um i would say i mean i love it it's different um the hydrogel in particular has like a more of a jello consistency that rather than a i always say goo is sort of like cake frosting right um and when i was you know, in my twenties, I was like, this is awesome. Like I love junk food. I'll just take down like a chocolate cake frosting. Um, I found that those goos, I need to make sure I time them to have water, some sort of liquid right after, or else particularly if it's like hot and you're getting dehydrated, like my mouth can just get sticky. Um, so the hydrogel is a different consistency that I have learned to love. I, I think it works really well. I'm able to take in quite a few calories. Um, it's a, it's a little bit of a rabbit hole, but as I tried to pursue the Olympic trials qualifying standard, I really tried to work on taking in as many calories as possible. Um, Well, not as humanly possible, but just like I really pushed my gut tolerance to try to say, okay, if you're going to need to push every uh, little variable, try to take in as many. So I started taking them in every 20 minutes or so, 20, 22 minutes um, as well as, liquids out on the course um just trying to arrive at the final miles saying like because towards the end like let's say the last 10k i find that you rarely really are looking forward to like that fifth or even like sixth gel you're just like no i want this to be done i just wanna your mind just wants to focus on the finish so what i try to do is be like very diligent i used to only take in three gels let's say um and as i've ramped it up to four to five i've definitely finished racism and like oh, look, I didn't take my fifth or sixth gel, but I was really good and diligent to my nutrition schedule early on because um, you want to arrive at a place where you're just, you're being true to yourself and the plan that you set out. You're not like making calls based on trying to figure out how you feel. Um, I will say like different, if you've never tried the Morton gel, um, I was recommending to my friend who's again, the charity runner that she either uh, try them, buy some and try them in the next week because they're they're nothing dramatic. It's sugar and it's in a certain form Um, or that she bring her own and she has a fuel belt and, you know, just really sticking with it. Um, It's a little bit of that nothing new on race day. I mean, regardless of what it is, I have a good friend who was a couple, like a hundred meters ahead of me and he, he grabbed a power bar vanilla gel. I remember this distinctly Uh, took it down and then threw it right back up (laughs) uh, at mile 17. And I thought like, Well, that wasn't ideal for him, you know. Like he's having a pretty good day, and like now he looks worse off for it. So I would say, like, practice what you're going to take down. I find that the Morton gel I'm able to take down, um, swallow without liquid necessarily, so I don't have to like concern myself with oh man, where exactly is the water stop? Or you'll see people reaching for a cup while also eating, and like it can just be stressful. Uh, So some pointers are always we always say to the new guys moving up to the marathon who are on our team like it's easier to swallow if you have more oxygen so try to time taking a gel with the downhill you know just try to like find which is maybe intuitive when you're not running but suddenly you're in the race and you you think i got to take it right now because i got to stay on schedule it's like no you need the wherewithal you need the uh, oxygen to take that in um and so just like try to set that schedule ahead of time and then you know, sometimes I give myself, like, like I said, sometimes I finish. I go, oh, I didn't take the sixth gel at like mile twenty-one. I just started going for it. Maybe a sip of Gatorade, and you're going. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think it's really key for people to both have a plan and then feel good about their plan, not feel like terrified by their plan.
0: And I'll just say for me personally, the difference between running a marathon with a fueling plan and running a marathon without a fueling plan is feeling a lot better and running a lot faster. And so yeah. it's definitely worth it.
1: <laughs> There's, um, if you just said like run 26 miles, actually I did this, um, our buddy, uh, Matt Chittam, rambling runner or early in the pandemic, he hosted a series of virtual races. And one day I just said like, I'm going to do his virtual marathon, you know, I'm going to do it. I like, I uh, was, I was inspired by the community and I went out and ran 26.2, to without any fluids. And by the end was just like dying. Um, and was like, Oh yeah, that's why I don't do this. Um, so uh, over the years I've gone from not really thinking like calories might be a good idea to knowing that they're mandatory for performance. Then I've also, there was a whole period where I like to say the benefit of taking down Morton, is that my friends and I don't necessarily throw up right after the finish line. (laughs) I have a friend, uh, I won't call him out, but he just like always, you'd be like, congrats, you just PR'd by five minutes. And he'd be like, I need... I actually need another five minutes. I need those five minutes because I'm going to go throw up everywhere and then I'll be okay. Which it sounds awful, but it really was just a result of him trying to take in too many calories and not being sort of like gut trained for that. Um, I find the Morton uh, fluids, their hydrogel, and then their actual like um, little package gels that they'll be getting out, just smoother going down. And I finish. The key for me that I'm focused on is I want to finish the race mentally still uh, aware and like cognizant of where I am. Whereas the first couple marathons, I thought, I think I sort of dramatized it in my mind. Like you finish on empty, you're bleary. You're like totally out of it. Um, and I realized just through practice, honestly, like on training runs, I realized, Oh, that was just caloric, uh, depletion. I was just like totally blissed out and unclear of, you know, which way was up. Whereas I've come to learn through practice, if you take in the calories, you're definitely going to be physically exhausted when you get to the line, if you do it well, but you don't have to be um, totally out of it. You can just be turning and you know having a normal conversation with someone and you're tired, but you're have taken in enough that your body's not like totally freaking out.
0: Spoken like a true pro. I, I completely <laughs> agree with you because I remember my first marathon, the New York city marathon, it was 2008. And I had exactly that experience. I finished the race and and then I just remember looking around as like, what am I supposed to do now? Like, I was just so confused. I didn't really have like my, you know, m- my bearings around me. And there was a medical person who asked me if I needed help. I just wasn't really in a good spot. And uh, once I started fueling more, once I started... You know, focusing more on carbohydrates before the race too, to put myself in a, a better position before the gun even went off, then you just don't have that kind of mental fog uh, in the later miles and right after the race. And I think it's important too, to recognize that if you're having that kind of brain fog because of a, a calorie deficit in the final miles of a marathon, that's going to affect your decision making, whether or not you should speed up or slow down or hold on for dear life. It's going to affect your, you know, your pain tolerance. It's going to affect so many different things about your psychology that are going to help you race fast. So it's certainly in your best interest to, uh, have a nutrition plan to practice it and to be confident with it. Uh, there is one aspect of the course, Peter, that I wanted to go into a little bit more detail on, because I think it's uh, I I think it's challenging. And that's that middle section. It's like from miles, you know, eight to 16, or I forget exactly how you split it up, but it's that kind of flat, boring middle miles. It's like the, the beginning is spicy because it's downhill and you're excited. The end is spicy because it's uphill, then it's downhill. And you know, it's just exciting because it's the end. What do you think about in the middle of the race when (laughs) you're kind of in that, that no man's land of, wow, I'm at mile 11 of a marathon, which is, which is a tough place to be in a marathon. And you know, you're not in the city, you're not dealing with Hills. You're not dealing with the biggest crowds of the race. That's a tough part of the Boston marathon.
1: That's a great question because that's honestly where I, as someone who's going to try to like run my absolute fastest, I try to mentally prepare for that section. Um, as much as any other section not because i don't think the other sections will take care of themselves but i they tend to get the lion's share of the focus like you're saying um, how do you do heartbreak how do you you know get by b u and kick it into the finish like by the time you get to kenmore square and you're kick you're going by fenway park like you're you're really digging um, so yeah i mean i think what i'd say is it, it helps to have a thought through who you might be running with like putting yourself doing some visualizations of where you'll be, who you'll be with, and then how much can you have made the decisions ahead of time um to like to not be questioning yourself and settle in. So, as long as I've dialed in the pace, and again it's slight it's never flat flat. It just looks flat on a uh elevation chart. It's kind of rolling up, kind of rolling down. I find mile 8 is my nemesis in a marathon because you think like, well, I have a 16 I have an 18 miler after this. Like I don't feel good right now. It's like I've run for an hour um, almost. And just like, it's just this weird mental threshold um, because you're not, you still feel a decent ways away from halfway. Um, Honestly, Jason, I've, I've gone so far as to sing like lullabies that I sing to my son at night to myself internally. Um, Cause it's like, It's like being at um, cruising altitude in a plane and you think like, okay, all systems check. We've got the pace. We know where we are in terms of fueling. Um, I don't do meditation. I know a lot of people do. I know this idea of mindfulness and like acknowledging your thoughts, but not letting them um, throw you off. You know, people who, friends of mine who meditate will talk about how you experience a thought sort of at a distance and you think okay that's a thought i need to acknowledge it and then move past it and get back to my meditative state i think of the middle miles as similar like at miles seven eight nine if you're running if you're truly racing regardless of what pace you're going it'll feel slightly uncomfortable it'll be annoyingly uncomfortable even at that early on it'll just be like well this isn't comfortable um, I can do it. Um, so then I try to think through, some people prefer mantras, you know, like things that give them feelings of strength. Other people, like I'll, um, I have, yeah, I think through the things that I'm going to uh, try to fixate on so, the, so that I don't fixate on the negative emotions or the belly aching that I hate of, of like, oh, why am I doing this? This is hard. Like um not going down that rabbit hole. So I'll sing, songs in my head um later on in the race i will you know i i read years ago that paula radcliffe like counts to 20 and i'll do that in the final like four miles like if i'm i distinctly remember i can picture what it's like in the final 5k of boston when i'm like one two three four and like and i'll go till 20 and then until i'm like too mentally tired and then i'll just go to 10 and i'll go to 10 over and over and over and that might only get you like halfway down a block um but that's, that's how you're fighting it through. So that's a very different mental um, perspective, a mental moment to be in than early on when it's not necessarily comfortable. But as long as you have your pace and your nutrition dialed in, you just need something to like soothe. I think then about my heart rate. I think like you can control your heart rate slightly with your mind and with your breathing, particularly your breathing. So if you can get your mind in the right place and what you're focused on positive enough that then you can slow your breathing and try to be taking in as much oxygen. Um, You can tell I've walked (laughs) that line of like failure uh, for a couple hours. I mean, I practiced this a ton when I was training to try to hit the Olympic trials qualifier, which was just like that Cause when I was doing that, I was like, the pace is non-negotiable. Like the pack will be moving at a certain pace. So as long as I'm in the pack, then there's not there's no real doing to be done. There's just how smoothly can I run this? How like within myself and how positive. So I would try to like without going without throwing myself off, I'd try to glance around at my teammates and just like distract um, myself. So um I do everything from all the things just mentioned, I'll even like um, in pursuit of a goal, I'll think how boring could I make this? If my mind starts to get like really overwhelmed, I'll like stare at a tree and just be like, I'm going to run this pace with these people um, to that tree. And then you pass that tree and you think, okay, I see up ahead, there is a crack in the pavement. I'm gonna do this to that crack in the pavement. And that sounds a little bit like, you know, the fight of the last two miles, like make it there. Um, but I find to your point, to the point of your question, I also need to do that early on. I'm like, oh, if I'm able to run the those middle miles as smoothly as possible, because guess what? You're going to come up on Wellesley. There's going to be screaming. There's going to be a downhill right after Wellesley. Then there's an uphill, like, right after Wellesley, um, it's not really noticeable on the map, but it's not flat. Um, there's enough to throw you off that you want to have these things that you're returning to that just calm your breathing, calm your mind and think like, I'm moving. I'm, I'm within myself. I feel strong.
0: Yeah. It's funny. The marathon is one of those races where in, in so many other races, you want to pump yourself up. You want to get excited. You, the crowds give you all this energy. And, and I've always found that in the marathon that can be helpful at certain moments, but for such a large chunk of the race, I almost want the complete opposite. And you mentioned, you know, some people like mantras to give them strength. When I ran my fastest marathon, I used a mantra during the first 20 miles. And it was almost the opposite. It was not to give me strength, not to get me excited or pumped up or, or jazzed up in any way. It was it was to soothe me. It was, I just told myself over and over again, relax, just relax. And that's all I was doing. I was just slowing my breathing down trying to make it smooth, just like you were saying. And I really wanted myself to think about the first 20 miles as the longest, but slowest tempo run that I've ever done. Yeah, I gotcha. That very simple mindset shift allowed me to almost, like you said, make it boring. I wanted to make the first 20 miles of my marathon easy. Now, it wasn't easy, of course, but I wanted in my mind to almost deceive myself a little bit like this is easy. I'm very relaxed. And I found that to be very soothing because at least in my personal experience, the first 20 miles isn't the type of difficulty that the first two miles of a 5k is like it's it's hard, but you can do it in a very relaxed kind of a way. And if you get too up, if you get too, you know, excited, at least for me. I get so anxious and, and that really destroys my mentality about the race.
1: Mm, yeah, no, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I think it's good to acknowledge and then think through like, what gives you energy? I've gotten, um, trash from my friends and competitors after the race and been like, you were like waving to the Wellesley fans. Uh, you know, because like, there's a like, there's all these traditions of, you know, kissing someone in wellesley or like high fives throughout um and there's a little bit of this like stodgy etiquette of um people towards the front of like no you're dialed in on your race um so i think but i think what i've learned is like you have to think it through and figure out what gives you the right puts you in the right mind space so um for me i i love to like um occasionally like high five a little kid on the side of the road who has their hand out um again like you have your stride really dialed in and you you've been doing it for over an hour um my parents went to bc and i love how, like how nuts the bc fans are so i'm um, i don't always do it but um quite a few times i've like uh cupped my ear to the bc fans like hey sort of saying like hey is that all you got and just then they go nuts um and it's just like gives me this boost of energy um because like it's just super exciting. It's also meaningfully like on a downhill. So like I'm like okay, I I need to find the right pace, but like I don't want to overdo it right now. I want to like be running this like smoothly. Um and so then yeah, like there's there's just hilarious photos that have been captured of me from marathon photo, you know, the official photographer that where I'm like waving to the I'm pointing to the crowd. I'm like and I'm and I I mean these are days where I'm like I was dead set on a PR and I was working on it, but I was also like, I love, um, there's a photo someone sent me. I need to figure out who took it because I just have my two, uh, fingers behind my ear. Like, what was that? Um, just to see if the crowd would notice and like scream some more. So, but again, those, like you're saying are, that was in the final 10 K, um, for those moments, like going by when you're falling off of heartbreak by BC, it's, quite downhill the fans have like they're often like already drunk it's the afternoon and they're like ready to rock um and it's you know they have cheered for the pros and then are like they tend to for guys like me they're like oh these these people don't acknowledge us like these people are dialed in on you know, their Strava splits and so then if I'm like what's up they're like yeah they like they go nuts um and you can even see it sort of in the multi-frame photos that I've uh purchased over the years like the fans kind of like quiet and then like erupting um and then going after split 22 i really think like at mile 22 is when like the race is on because you have four miles left which if you've paced yourself um it's going to be hard but it's also like it's a four miler like it could be a turkey trot it could be you know the last four miles i think of it sort of like the last four miles of a cross-country race uh where it you've gotten out hard and it's going to be hard, but like, you just got to take sort of block at a time. Um, and it, so you hit mile 22 and then you curl down around the BC reservoir. And the so again, you're going downhill. So you have a little bit more oxygen and the fans are like leaning out over the fence, just like screaming for you. And um, you're like, okay, like let's get ready to really dig. Um, same as going through, I think it's Coolidge corner. Um, you're just like, you're going downhill and, all these people have been partying all day, and like I think it's worth taking in the the energy and the excitement. It can feel like too much at times, but it also is to me, it's the beauty of the, b- the Boston Marathon, like it's just that it builds and builds and builds and builds. like New York uh, we could talk about for hours because it has so much so many multicultural differences b- based on the borough. Um, but the one thing I always give New York a hard time for is like the hardest part of the course is Fifth Avenue. Um, in those like mid 20s 23 24 I think and you're going up Fifth Avenue and I distinctly remember it's like Sunday morning and there was some uh, well to do well-dressed people sort of golf clapping like and you're like they just came from brunch they are not like the BC fans like screaming their faces off you know there are fans in New York but typically they're uh, in Brooklyn they're um, in the Bronx and so then I'm like oh man finishing with the uh, on the Upper East Side, um, is like not necessarily the crowd I want. Uh, so that's why I, I just get fired up for the BU BC, uh, students who are like just going nuts. And to me, that gives me energy and I know to look for it. Um, and I just try to like, I feed off of it and, um, it all leads up to, you know, the finish, which is just insane.
0: Yeah, I love that you brought up this kind of wanting different energy levels at different points of the race, because there's certainly going to be times where, you know, you're going to be singing a lullaby to yourself and you're just kind of dialed in and you're distracting yourself. But then there's times where you want to be engaging with the fans and, you know, just kind of participate in in the event itself rather than just on your running, which I think is really exciting. You know, when I was running the Philadelphia Marathon, I think it was relatively early in the race, but I was feeling good and I just, I wanted some of that crowd excitement. There were people at, I think it was Temple University in Philadelphia and it was early, but they were out partying right in front of the this big frat house. They had all these beers out. And, you know, like you mentioned, they're not really expecting some of the, the people in the first hundred, 200, 300 people in the race to to communicate too much with them. But, you know, they offered me a beer and I said, I'm going to come back in two hours. And, and like <laughs> they went crazy.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it exactly. was just so
0: fun. You know, I kind of like put a smile on my face and, you know, that's what you want in a race.
1: Yeah. Anything to keep you in that mind, like that excited mindset of like, Ooh, the opportunity is ahead of me as opposed to like the dread of, Oh no, I'm tired. I think anything to do that is really helpful.
0: Yeah. And one of the things I'm taking from this conversation, Peter, is that it's always beneficial to have a plan. And I think we as runners overly focus, maybe not overly focused, but our entire focus is usually on the training plan, right? We're going to train really well for this race and after this conversation with you, you know, you have a plan for not only, you know, how you want to fuel and structure your nutrition at different points during the race, you have a plan for what you're going to think about during moments of the race that you know are difficult for you. And that is a level of planning that I think a lot of runners don't think it actually goes into racing a fast marathon. But at your level, you're planning out as much as you can. You know, you're training your gut, you're training your body, you're training your mind, you're trying to really leave no stone unturned and give yourself every advantage to hopefully have a great day. And, you know, if if you don't plan your training, then you're not going to have a good race because you're physically unprepared. But if you don't plan what you're going to think about and maybe a mantra or two that resonates with you. Or, you know, maybe you struggle in the later stages of a marathon or even in the beginning with anxiety. Having a plan to address that, I think is so extraordinarily helpful for marathoners, especially at the Boston Marathon, which is admittedly a a
1: difficult course. Yeah, I mean, and I would say Boston is hard because of all the things I described, but it's also actually hard because it can be kind of quick. Um, So there's plenty of marathons that are like way harder, but no one really expects you to run fast there. So it's like, oh, you finished well. Good job. You did it. Um, I think everything we're saying kind of falls under the caveat of like Boston is downhill. It can be quick. People start to um, my joke. I I joked at one point, like there's four seasons of Boston to the year. There's like um, the three months after the race, which people like, oh, Boston's hard like Boston's brutal. Then there's like the next six months, which are like, you know, Boston's hard, but like it is downhill. It can be, it, it can be quick. And then there's like the three months leading up to it, which is like, oh, downhill course. People are looking at the 2011 results with the tailwind. They're like, I'm a PR on this course. And then the race happens and then you reset. And it's like, then there's three months of people are respecting the course again. So it's all under the thing of like, it is difficult, um, but it also, it's because people are, uh they're really attacking it um one thing i wanted to bring up was from i ran in 229 in 2016 and so then i headed back in 2017 like i want to set a new pr and it was a little hot and i was headed out on pr pace and i started to really get down on myself like this is too hard this is too hard i a little bit i started to freak out and uh i experienced something which i think was a lesson which i realized i was like i'm actually still running this race And my finish sort of crashing and burning is not inevitable. If I slow down a little bit and I calm down a little bit, um, I can, you know, I'm still doing this. I don't have, I think I had gotten into this mindset of like, I just got to go for it. And then I started to dread, like, I'm going to fail today. I'm going to crash and burn. And I was, there's often a lot of margin in a marathon finish time where, you know, roughly in a ballpark of seconds or minutes, people would say, Jason, you still ran, a, you ran a great race. So it's sort of like, if you, if you want to run three Oh five and you're like, stop not feeling it. You're like, what if I ran three Oh six today? Like, you know, what if I just didn't barrel into running, you know, three twenty five um, because I was so dead set on this one time. Um, I mean, and I keep bouncing back and forth. I, I had to kind of throw that mindset out the door when I was going for the OTQ cause it really was a crisp time of like you're in or you're out. Um, but the beauty of Boston is like, you know, it is a, it's a competition. You look at someone's bib and they qualified either ahead or behind you and you want to beat that person. Um, and so it's more about getting excited about racing on the day and staying within yourself. And if you're not feeling well, like, um, I ran great in 2019 and multiple times, um, Early on, it was sort of warm and humid, and my teammate and Patrick and I said to each other, "Like, I don't feel good. Do you feel good?" And it was like, "No, let's slow, up. let's slow up for five seconds a mile right now." And like that can feel like a micro difference, just um, you know, if you haven't practiced it. But like everyone knows what it looks like, what it feels. Everyone who's running Boston has run enough to know what it feels like to just go a little easier, like you're saying, um, and not just feel like, oh, I. This Today is not going well. I just have to finish it poorly. It's like, no, um, I could still. And I I know people who have stopped, dead stop, like taken a drink of Gatorade, caught their breath, and then got back to it um, and really saved their day just by, sure, slowing up slightly, um, but also staying well within a range that they felt good about at the end.
0: Yeah, that's such a great point. I think I remember listening to another coach years and years ago, and one of the lessons that that he talked about, I forget who it was, but he was saying how it doesn't always get worse. And so, if you're in a race, or even in a workout, or a long run, or, or any kind of run, really, you know, you have these waves of emotions and feelings, and sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. If you have a negative thought or an emotion that's kind of dragging you down. It doesn't mean that the rest of your race is going to slowly unravel and you're going to get slower and slower and you're going to feel worse and worse. You, you might turn things around in 30 seconds or a mile from now. And so there's, I I think a good lesson from, you know, listening to you work through some of these issues is that you don't necessarily have to trust every errant thought that comes through your head, especially in a race situation where dark thoughts are going to come inside your head because you're doing something very challenging. And, you know, you kind of just have to, you know, like you were saying before, plan for a little bit of that, have a plan and and recognize that, hey, this is going to happen to me. If I have a plan, I'm going to be able to address it
1: and I'm going to be a better runner for it. Absolutely. Um, You hear a lot about this, or I do, when I listen to ultra runners talk about how they make it through uh, 100Ks, 100 miles. Is like that's actually enough time for them to stop, like change shoes, fuel up, and like go from down to up again, Um, or just say I'm going to keep moving forward even if I don't feel well. So I think a marathon is actually like a really high, uh, high speed playing of that same record, where like I'll I'll notice I'll be along um, just humming along at the same pace and I'll go through periods of like, Whoa, um, I feel nauseous all of a sudden. And it's just your body processing the sugars. It's like your heart rate, um, might spike due to excitement or a slight uphill. And you just think, okay, just gotta, again, that's, those are great times to just pick uh, a spot in the distance and say, I'm going to run to that stand of trees. And I'm not going to think about what's after that. Like you're saying, it doesn't necessarily get worse. It could, I might just move through that experience.
0: Man, Peter, I'm excited about Boston this year. We've been talking about this for more than an hour. I'm so jazzed up right now. I'm excited for you and everyone else running Boston this year. It's been a couple of years since I've been back for the race, but God, it's one of the best races in the country. Oh, and thank you. I want you to have a good time. Uh, I know you've been training. I was able to kind of be around you for a couple of days last month while you were, you were getting ready and you were doing some runs. We were up uh, in Outside of Boulder on Magnolia Road, which is kind of an iconic long run location, and so you know, I hope when you're in the final miles, you remember the high altitude hammering you were doing out there on Magnolia and how it's given you so much strength.
1: Yeah, thank you. No, it'll be. I definitely will recenter that in the final miles because it was it was definitely hard. It was, and it's just that feeling of like, oh yeah, it's this is hard, but I've done hard things, and um, I in the lead up up to this, and I I think I said during that weekend at some point, there's times I have to remind myself, like, it's okay if it sucks right now, because, like, that's the result of the situation I've put myself in. And that's not um, like a, a, a beeper going off saying, like, oh, no, danger, danger. It's just saying, like, no, this is discomfort I've set up for myself, and I can handle it. I've practiced for it. And that's a sign that I'm in the exactly right spot. So yeah, no, thank you. This has been a pleasure for me, because also it helps me articulate the things that I know I need to get mentally straight before the gun on the 11th.
0: Well, I'm going to be tracking you on race day. Can other people track you? Do do you think just using the BAA app is the best way to do it? Or are you going to be publishing some like automatic splits or something like that?
1: oh no yeah baa will be the best um i actually have the honor of because i'm a masters i'll be starting with the elite field at 8:37. um so pretty um excited about that nervous um it's interesting though because i'm gonna start with like the top runners in the entire field um i actually have to take to heart some of the advice i've been giving for the last hour even more because i i will be running quite a few of those miles alone at some point um i know from experience two years ago that at times I'll be running with someone. I might end up ahead. I might end up behind. Um, So I was actually thinking about this the other day. I got dropped on a workout with one of my teammates who's faster than me. And the moment he detached, I was like, you know, you freak out. You think now it's all going to go downhill. And then I was like, oh, wait, no, this is just exactly how the race will be. Uh, I'm now alone um, and I need to run my own race, uh, which is always sort of a truism. It's like a cliche, but um, I'm super excited for it. I'm hopeful that the fans in a fall Boston are out like hungry for cheering after two years off. Um, and I can't wait.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited. I can't wait to, to watch it. And so uh, in the show notes for this episode, I'm going to include a link to uh, your website, your newsletter. Oh, thank I- you. I know that you're going to be writing about this experience, and I can't wait to read the race report afterwards and your thoughts on how it all went down. But Peter Bromka, everyone, thanks so much for being here, man. Thanks for having me. And that's our show. If you're running Boston soon, best of luck. I hope you take advantage of our Boston course guide at strengthrunning.com slash Boston. And don't miss Peter Bromka on social media or his amazing free newsletter at thepositivesplit.com. I also want to thank our sponsors who are helping me make this show possible. Inside Tracker wants to help you do what you love for life. They want you to be a successful, healthy runner for decades, and I do too. They were founded back in 2009 by aging, genetics, and biometric scientists to help you analyze your body's data and get a firm idea of how well you're responding to training understanding your body's biomarkers from stress hormones to testosterone to vitamin D can help you figure out if you're overtraining, undertraining, or if you're optimally training. But I think the best part is that after you get all your data, they then give you personalized optimal ranges for each of those biomarkers, and then a whole host of ways to improve those markers through both diet, lifestyle, or exercise changes. I've personally gotten two ultimate tests in the past, and I've also just now gotten my third. I can't wait to get the results. And for a limited time, you can get 25% off any test at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. This is a big deal because these tests are fairly expensive because they test for so many different biomarkers. You can stack the odds in your favor Give yourself every advantage with a personalized blood test. Go to insidetracker.com strengthrunning to save 25% today. We're also supported by Path Projects. I love a lot of things about Path, from my amazing shirt that has mountains on it. I also have a shirt that has an elevation profile graph on it. And I also love that they separate their shorts and their baseliners into two distinct products. That means that there's no chafing and you have options for different lengths and fabrics of both products. So you can really customize the type of short that you're looking for based on your personal preferences and the type of run that you're about to start. They use a proprietary fabric that's incredibly durable. I've had shorts for years and they look like new. They're quite stretchy, they're moisture wicking. So if you ever see me around Denver, you're probably going to see me in my Sykes 5-inch shorts. I love them. I call them my adventure shorts. Check out all of their shorts, baseliners, shirts, and headwear at pathprojects.com. And right now, I'm wearing a t-shirt that has that elevation map on it, like I mentioned. I just love how different it is from all the other gear that you can buy. You can check out all their stuff at pathprojects.com. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being part of the Strength Running community. I so appreciate all the recent reviews that you've left this podcast. Those are so important and impactful. Until next time.